Just because you apply doesn't guarantee you'll get federal security clearance. Lots of people make basic errors in their clearance and suitability forms, and that can make things take longer than they should or maybe deny altogether. Here with some tried-and-true advice on the mistakes to avoid, Shaw Bransford Roth attorney James Heelan. Mr. Heelan, good to have you on. Hi, morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with the process itself. This is that one where I think I read that form once. It's something like 52 pages, or is it it's... Form 52? Or tell us about some of the details. <laughs> I think you're talking about the SF-86. It's the standard application that all civilians, military personnel, contractors fill out, anyone who wants to get access to classified information. They fill out the SF-86. It's about 125-some pages, and it uh, is a thorough examination of a person's life history, really their their whole adult experience. And it it asks all sorts of questions that the government um, thinks are relevant to whether that person is trustworthy um, to protect national secrets. How long does it typically take someone, say the first time around, to get through all of this form filling? I have to give you that standard lawyer answer. It depends. You know, if I'm a 22-year-old intern and I'm on a congressional committee and I'm applying for my first clearance, I don't have a whole lot of life experience to report. Maybe I have some juvenile arrests that I would be compelled to disclose in the SF-86. Potentially, I've moved around a bit. But uh, it's a pretty simple application if you're a young person applying for the first time. And you might go through the investigation uh, within six to eight months, or it could be even quicker. But let's say you're a full-grown adult and it's your first time filling out that SF-86. You have a lot of things to report. You may have many foreign contacts. Perhaps you've lived abroad. Perhaps you've been um, married before, and the government may be interested to understand the circumstances of the divorce and separation. So it all depends on how much life experience you have behind you and how much the government uh, has to examine. Well, at 125 pages, I guess it's easy (laughs) to have typos and so forth, the things you left out. So what mistakes do people make, do you find, that they should avoid and kind of have top of mind before they start? At our firm, we see um, five top mistakes, things that come across our desks most often. Uh, Most often we see people misreporting or failing to report drug use and involvement. The SF-86 asks about seven years of drug use and involvement. Nowadays, involvement is so broad to mean um, things including investment in marijuana activities. So several years ago when pot stocks hit the market, I got several calls from potential new clients asking me about their investments, you know, whether they had to divest before filling out the SF-86. And the answer is that they do. They should be aware of their investments and divest of them before they try to obtain a national security. And that even includes, say, mutual funds or managed funds where there could be scores, dozens, hundreds of individual stocks within that fund. Actually, it doesn't. That's a really excellent point. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence recently, a couple years ago, released a memorandum specifically on marijuana, and it specifically addressed investments and said that indirect investments where a person isn't reasonably expected to know every single stock that their money is invested in um, are acceptable. But you can't you can't just go out and invest in a, a pot stock directly out in the marketplace. And by the way, just as an ancillary, what about cryptocurrency, which is slightly shady to begin with? You know, I haven't had any uh, cryptocurrency issues come across my desk. All right. So that's number one, drug use and involvement. What's the second big mistake? The other is arrests. People think that just because there was an arrest that didn't result in a charge or that their record was expunged, they think that they don't need to report these arrests. But the SF-86 is explicit. Even if 
an arrest is expunged or if it was done away with through some sort of settlement agreement or um, alternative resolution program, you still need to disclose it on the SF-86 report in your investigation. People try to rationalize their way out of reporting things. You know, they say, well, the court told me that I wouldn't have a record and the officer told me there wouldn't be a report written up. Well, it's, it's, it's still responsive to the question on the 86. And if you don't report it, the background investigator, I assure people out there, will find out. We're speaking with James Heelan. He's an attorney with Shaw, Bransford and Roth. And what's the third biggest mistake? Foreign contacts. This has been a real developing issue over the last 15 years, especially with social media. You know, people go on vacation. They befriend some people. They, they become Facebook friends. They follow them on Instagram. Uh, it took a long time for security clearance adjudicators to really decide what a friend meant, for example, on Facebook. So people, people get into trouble because they forget the foreign contacts they have in their lives. And it's awful difficult, especially if you live in an area like D.C., where you have foreign nationalities next door at the bars and restaurants you, you usually go to. Um, you may have friends with spouses or you know, in-laws who come from different countries. Those are all reportable foreign contacts. The big concern is that uh, a country may use a foreign national to surreptitiously persuade you into divulging or otherwise um, compromising national security interests. Right. So if you went to France, it's not every waiter that you met in the cafes in Saint-Germain-des-Prés, but just maybe someone you might have retained friendship with and have regular correspondence with, say, as you mentioned, on social media. Exactly. If it's the kind of person, let's say, you made real fast friends on your cruise ship and say, you know, if you're ever in town, you can stay on my, uh, my couch, you can stay at my place. That's the kind of person you need to report. And just to be clear, if, say, a next-door neighbor or someone that you are friends with day-to-day you may not even know if they're a foreign national. An accent is not necessarily an indicator one way or the other. Right. But your obligation is just to report what you know. Right. Not just what you remember. You have a duty to do due diligence and dig in and really assess your own life and then report out. And if it is a neighbor, it's likely they could be visited by that investigator anyway, because I myself have been visited about my next door neighbor a couple of times over the years. Exactly. And that just goes to show, even if you don't disclose it, the government will likely find out and they'll likely ask you about it. And you don't want the first time you you know about something to be in your investigatory interview. All right. And number four. Uh, Prior job issues. People um, are required to disclose whether they left a former position uh, and the circumstances under which they left the, the position. And people think oftentimes, again, with settlements, they say, well, there's a confidentiality clause. There's nothing in my OPF. There's no record of uh, a proposed removal or a difficult circumstance that compelled me to leave the job. People, like I said, try to rationalize why they don't need to disclose, but the form is explicit. If you left your job after learning that you were going to be forced to leave your job, or if you left your job under any kind of agreement of specific circumstances, you need to disclose. And uh, so people get in trouble because, like I said, they, they rationalize and they decide the rules somehow don't apply to them. The theme I'm hearing here is that even though things might be confidential from a legal standpoint and whatever agreements you might have had established by a court or some kind of a judging organization, right. that doesn't right. matter for purposes of reporting on your SF-86. Exactly. Exactly. The SF-86 doesn't care about whatever legal fiction exists out there in agreements and settlements and confidentiality clauses that might apply. The SF-86 is interested in the reality. They want to know what you have done in your life and want to be able to investigate it. They want you to be upfront and disclose it. And then that leads us to the fifth biggest mistake. The fifth biggest mistake encapsulates everything I've just said. It's lacking care and thoroughness on the SF-86, not 
thoroughly reviewing your personal records, not going through your credit report to report any um, any sort of what's called derogatory information on the SF-86. People, you know, it's it's not a quick form. It's lengthy for a reason. It deserves lots of time and attention. You want access to national security information, you should do your own due diligence before you apply. And should you have someone review it, even though there is a lot of confidential stuff in there that is the government's right to know, but perhaps nobody else's, but I mean... I guess you know, as an attorney in this area of law, I would say absolutely. I would say absolutely have an attorney review it. People can um, can review it for thoroughness. They may want to go through all of your documentation with you. There's different levels of service out there that attorneys will provide. And it strikes me that if someone is in this general field of perhaps working for or with the government, even if you don't anticipate anything in the near future requiring clearance, is it a good idea just to download the SF-86 and go ahead and Fill it out so you'll be ready should the time come, if you like self-torture. <laughs> you know, if you really want to be prepared, uh, sure, it's, it could be like updating a resume. You know, you, you keep it up to date, and as you go along, you continue adding the addenda. I haven't done that myself, but I could see some people out there wanting to be awful prudent. Follow that kind of advice, yes. All right, 125 pages. So if you do a page a night, it'll only take you four months. <laughs> For a very long weekend. Yeah, or a very long weekend. James Heelan is an attorney with Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy. His name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her. I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was 
I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, at, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities 
is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.